Hello and welcome to Conversations On, where the YMCA of the North engages with local and national leaders about their experiences, their insights, and their aspirations to help people from all walks of life live better. I'm Rashidi Rajkumar. Today, CEO Glenn Gunderson talks with Melvin Carter, a fourth-generation St. Paul resident who won his second term as mayor in 2021. Find out why fond memories of growing up in St. Paul's Rondo neighborhood inspire this devoted husband and father to want to make his city and the entire state of Minnesota better. Hey, Mayor Melvin Carter, just so great to have you as a guest. And I have admired your leadership. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Maybe you start by just sharing where have you come from? Where where did you grow up and what did childhood look like? Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the question and I appreciate you having me on. Um, I am. I came from literally right, right where I, where I am right now. Frankly, uh, I'm a child of St. Paul. Uh, my family. I'm fifth generation St. Paul, raising the sixth generation right now. Uh, my family came here uh, in the early 1900s, uh, fleeing um, racial violence in the Deep South to this place that they heard had some opportunities, some jobs, uh, and education for their children uh, here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and so I grew up right in the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul. Uh, some folks may recognize that name Rondo as the neighborhood, the thriving African-American community that was uprooted to build I-94. Um, my grandfather lost, I think, over a half a dozen commercial properties uh, when the freeway came through. And long story short, I don't own over a half a dozen commercial properties today. So it really gutted our family inheritance. I grew up hearing those stories. I uh, grew up kind of in, 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 in the schools in our city. Uh, in the rec centers and libraries and community centers of, of our city, uh, playing sports, having fun, uh, graduated from Central High School and went to college at Florida A&M University, uh, which is about, what, 1,200 miles away. And I always tell folks that one of the most valuable lessons that I learned uh, moving 1,000 miles away from home was how good home was. You know, uh, we take for granted a whole lot of things in St. Paul, uh, but as it turns out, not every city has a free municipal zoo. Not every city has the arts and culture scene that we have, uh, has the public education system that we have, uh, has the police department that we have. Uh, not every city has the diversity and the multilingualism and all the incredible things that we have right here to offer here in St. Paul. Uh, and that's what I learned in moving to Florida. Uh, what an incredible setup we have right here in Minnesota. Now, along with that comes, as I know you know well, a set of embarrassing and persistent disparities that we have to face um, in, in all of those areas. I remember saying when I was I think 26 or 27 years old uh, and running for city council that I love Minnesota so much that I wanted some of it in my neighborhood. That's the spirit that has led me to work in politics in the first place. Um, and so I spent uh, four, six years on the St. Paul City Council, four years uh, working in an early childhood capacity uh, uh, for former Governor Mark Dayton uh, and was really blessed uh, to be elected by the people of this community in 2017 uh, to serve as mayor through what would turn out to be one of the most challenging periods in our city's history. Yeah, incredible. And I look forward to talking a little bit about that that tumultuous time that you've taken on in this leadership. Um, start a little bit with uh, you as a young person in St. Paul and how did race show up? You know, we're going to get to, you know, the murder of George Floyd and what that thrust you into, but uh, go backwards a little bit. How did it show up for you as a young person? Probably both a lot and not at all. When I'm speaking in kind of national environments, then I always tell folks uh, that whatever your preconceived notions of St. Paul are, are 100% true 100 years ago, right? 
um, and more accurately, maybe 40 years ago, uh, because the St. Paul I grew up in uh, wasn't a city that's a majority renter. The St. Paul I grew up in wasn't a city that's a majority people of color. The St. Paul I grew up in wasn't the type of place that uh, the children in our public schools speak over a hundred different languages now. And it was a profoundly different St. Paul. Now, as the son of a police officer, um, I gained a set of uh, unique experiences because as a, as, as a very young child, I met a whole lot of police officers who uh, came on with my father as a class of African-American officers as a, after a court decision um, required the St. Paul Police Department to integrate itself. Uh, and so I would see those officers uh, at you know fight night and at Super Bowl parties and you know hanging out on the weekends and those types of things. Uh, and then of course, when I turned 16 and started driving around our city, uh, I met a whole lot of other officers in our community. So you know one of my experiences has really been uh, in this city uh, has really been one of, of, of polarized experiences. Um, I graduated from Central High School, uh, matriculated through uh, from sixth grade on our St. Paul Public Schools. Before that, from first grade to through fifth grade, I went to St. Paul Academy, which was a fine, fun, fundamentally different uh, socio-cultural experience and economic experience uh, than J.J. Hill, Capitol Hill, and Central High School were. And so um, the, the, what, what I experienced growing up um, were, was, was intriguingly two profoundly polarized realities. Um, and when I was in uh, my neighborhood, uh, people couldn't imagine literally couldn't conceive of what like the type of life that my friends who went to St. Paul Academy could uh, were, were living. Uh, and when I was at school, I was among a group of people who just couldn't conceive uh, of the realities that really existed in my neighborhood. So um, I, I don't think a lot of those things really came up that much. If the question is how did they come up, uh, they didn't really come up that much if, in terms of as a, a subject of conversation or as a topic of kind of public discourse, uh, but they were very much a reality every moment of my life. Yeah. One of the things I admire so much about you is, is how much you, you have been open about and leading aggressively against some of these disparities. And I'm curious, as you're growing up in Rondo and you, like you say, in the shadow of the Capitol, when did you know that public service was going to be a big part of your future. And I'm sure I'd love to hear a little bit about your parents both being pretty deeply engaged in community. You know, um, it's a good question. And I, I don't know that I know the answer to it. Um, <laughs> I went to college on a track and field scholarship and, and, and plan A was the Olympics uh, at that point in time. Uh, plan B was just like world championships, right? <laughs> and it went from there. Um, and so public life uh, wasn't really a, uh, a consideration for me for a really long time. Um, um, I was always passionate about community life uh, and, you know, we would volunteer and my parents both founded nonprofit organizations. Uh, my mom was a, you know, a um, nonprofit founder and turned into a teacher and now serves as, as the, uh, on the Ramsey County Board of Commissioners. My father was a police officer who founded a nonprofit as well. Mom's nonprofit focused on arts education of young people. Dad's nonprofit focused on engaging and intervening, particularly with African-American boys who had some kind of contact with the juvenile justice system. So I learned this model of just caring for community from my parents. Our house was literally the one. I have no idea how people knew. But if there's a, a thunderstorm outside and it's hailing and the tornado sirens are going off, like our house was the one that like a homeless person could knock on the door and ask to come in and wait out the storm in our living room. Uh, and the answer would be yes. I have no idea how they knew to knock on my parents' door. But that's the type of just care that I just always saw my parents. And so in the same way as I think, you know, I grew up 
assuming that an adult uh, likes onions and has lots of keys on their keychain, because that's what I saw my parent doing. Um, you know, growing up in our household, there's really not a way to envision a future where you're not doing something in community. The, the intriguing thing is, I never saw um, electoral politics as relevant to making community life better. And we can have a whole different podcast on just that topic. But one of the um, intriguing experiences that I had in Florida was my first presidential election I got to vote in was election 2000. And I know some of your viewers will remember Florida and hanging chads in election 2000. Um, and so I was there, I experienced that election as a student at Florida A&M University, which is one of the largest historically black colleges in the country. And it's also situated in the capital city of Florida. So um, I wasn't this profoundly political student. I didn't run, you know, I wasn't the student government type um, and never saw myself running for office or anything like that. As a matter of fact, uh, it's funny now, uh, but I remember thinking on election day in 2000 in Florida in a swing state, I remember thinking I'll probably go vote after class if I have time, right? Um, I was living at the time, Glenn, with my older sister, her husband, and their two-year-old daughter. And my brother-in-law looked at me and said with a smile on his face, hey, everybody who lives here is going to vote today. <laughs> so uh, he sort of bullied me into getting in the car. And we went and we voted. Uh, we stood in line for half an hour, longer than half an hour. And I remember the line kind of stretching in the parking lot. And we got to the front of the line. I voted and my sister voted. And my brother-in-law uh, who had made me get in the car in the first place and stood in line with his two-year-old daughter in line with him, got turned away from the polls. And so we stood there arguing this, like, uh, his right to vote. In the year 2000 in Florida, uh, arguing his right to vote with somebody who, frankly, didn't have the power to put him on the list, any back on the list anyways. His name had gotten scrubbed from the list. And Florida doesn't have same-day voter registration like Minnesota does. So they really, there was no recourse whatsoever. Found out really quickly that hundreds of our classmates had gotten turned away from the polls that day. Um, and found myself, um, a couple days later, my parents called me and said, hey, aren't you supposed to be in class? And I said, I am. And they said, we see you on CNN. You're at the state capitol at the student <laughs> walkout. And so I was busted. Um, but that created for us, I think this real, um, you know, standing there, uh, arguing with the polling person. It was embarrassing. It was infuriating. We were, we, were, we were like confused. In the end, I think what I realized is I couldn't reconcile it against 12 years of public education that told me that the thing that makes our country so amazing, like the secret sauce, is that everybody who wants to say gets to say. Um, and, there, you know, I, I was in business school. Uh, I was a, 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 a sprinter, a runner, an athlete, and, you know, and it made us um, take a look and all the privileges that we had, even as African-American students at this historically black college, and made us uh, really reconsider some of the things that we had thought of as foregone conclusions and really bred a really incredible, I think, um, generation of young people who have been from my university, uh, who have been around the world uh, making change and doing positive things. And I'm excited to be able to be, uh, in some circles at least, considered to be part of that group. Yeah, it's so interesting. And you think about, you know, fast forward 20 years and the fact that, um, you know, we're dealing with some of these same issues around voter rights and opportunity for all to have that voice. And I, I'd love for you to reflect a bit on, I, I guess I think about you as this leader for good. And then you get thrust into these political environments where, uh, for whatever reason, in our country, it's so politically divided and so toxic in many ways. So how do you balance that? You know, how do you maybe talk about your leadership style and how you put all of that into context. 
Um, I appreciate that. I, I, I don't know that I know what my leadership style is. It might, there may be other people who uh, would be able to speak kind of better to that. Um, these past two years have been rough. I was talking to a group of students and they said, if you could go back and give yourself advice back in 2017 when you first ran for office, uh, what advice would it be? And I told them, I'd probably tell myself, don't run for office yet. Wait until 2021 and run against whoever had the misfortune of being <laughs> mayor during all that stuff. Um, but that's, of course, just a joke. I mean, at some level, um, part of what my team and I discuss is that, you know, if, if we're if we're captaining a ship, um, it doesn't really take leadership. It doesn't really take all that much skill. I think I could probably captain a ship in the middle of the ocean on a beautiful uh, sunny day. Uh, but when the storms come in and when the waves go high and when the winds kind of come up, uh, and, and, and those perils and challenges face, um, that's what requires some level of skill. And as hard as these last couple of years have been, as much as I uh, uh, regret that everything we've been through oh, it's in, in, the, in the shadow of the pandemic, uh, in the shadow of the murder of George Floyd and all the civil unrest that followed, um, and as, as, as devastating as, as a lot of those things have been, uh, my hope is that it liberates us uh, from that reality that I talked about when I was a kid, where these things were present all around us. These factors were present all around us. Uh, structurally racist systems were present all around us. Uh, but we could pretend that they weren't. We could pretend that they didn't exist. We could pretend and just go on a, a, about our life. Um, one of the things that I think is important to know about these last two years um, is that everything has changed in these last two years. And the other thing that I think is most important to know about these last two years is that nothing has changed in these last two years. Um, we have seen people um, um, decimated uh, by a disease uh, that they didn't have the resources or the medicine uh, to be able to conquer and overcome. That's not new. Uh, we have seen people uh, lose their home, lose their homes, uh, lose their jobs, uh, lose their income, uh, lose their, you know, cut off from their source of finances that they, that they depend on to feed their families. Uh, that's not new. Uh, we've seen a, uh, a series of unarmed, uh, and non-aggressive African-American men in particularly uh, lose their lives at the hands of law enforcement in a way uh, that has shocked our senses. Uh, I wish that we could pretend that that was new. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the things that have really rocked our world over these last two years um, have been things that frankly have been somewhat predictable. We've seen loss of life in St. Paul last year. We had a record number of homicides in our community. And as horrific as that is, solving that problem depends on our ability to recognize that that's not new either. When I was in high school, the, the, the record we broke was set when I was in high school. My father, who is in his 70s now, uh, one of the defining moments of his life is when he lost two of his cousins and closest friends uh, in a double homicide in the city of St. Paul, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And we won't be able to solve these problems if we pretend that they're new. We've had uh, prophetic voices uh, throughout humankind uh, who have tried to tell us uh, that uh, we're all in it together. And so I, I hope what's new in the course of these last two years, uh, Martin Luther King tried to tell us that, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. Um, our hope to know in the last two years is a, 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 is an ultimate and kind of final uh, reawakening of that fact as what we've seen, learned and rehearsed over these last couple of years has been 
a, a real awareness, uh, an acute awareness that this isn't um, uh, uh, philosophy, it's not abstract thought, but just on a real Main Street basis, when our neighbors don't have a place to sleep, um, don't have a home, uh, and Dr. Fauci says it's time to shelter in place, right? Um, when people can't take a, a week or two weeks off of work to care for themselves or a sick child when it's time to quarantine, uh, that we're all uh, less safe. And so uh, when, when, when people can't afford to go to the doctor when they have symptoms, we're just all less safe. My hope is that we finally learn that and we're finally able to, um, and we're finally able to operationalize that, not just in our words and our sermons and our, in our, in our faith rhetoric, but in the way we make public policy and public investments. And let me tell you, if this is that turning point in American history, uh, then it is one of the biggest, most incredible blessings of my life uh, to be able to be a part of it. Yeah, you know, I think all of us, and me certainly personally, watched you in June, in July, in August of 2020, and with a source of pride. I mean, it was really quite impressive to watch you try to make sense of all this for us in our community. And I wonder if you would just go a little more micro into what was it like being a leader in June of 2020, um, as visible as you needed to be. Um, I think it'd be very enlightening for our guests just to hear a little bit about that experience. It's a good question. Um, and I don't know that I experienced it in real time as like, I have to be a leader for, you know, whatever. Um, it just felt like a really um, fragile moment. Um, obviously, uh, that video is one of the hardest things I've had to watch in my life. I have friends uh, and colleagues who, you know, when these new videos come out, they always say, I don't want to watch it because it disgusts me um, and it, or it breaks my heart or whatever. Um, and I think one of the most important things we have to do is we have to look at it. We have to, we have to let our hearts be broken. We have to feel and experience that disgust. Because uh, if we don't, we'll never be able to break it. Uh, we'll never be able to break the systems that produce these things so often. There's just not an excuse. There, there's, there's no justifiable reason why Minnesota, of all the things that we know about our state, uh, the demographics of our state, or the, the economics of our state, uh, the, 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 the policy uh, in, environment in our state, uh, there, there's just no good reason for Minnesota to export these hashtags to Mississippi and to the deep south and to the coast and to all over to the rest of the world. There's just no acceptable reason for that. So, so to see that video um, was, was heartbreaking. Um, it wasn't our first such heartbreak, obviously. And so it's, it's this kind of compound effect uh, that has taken from us here in Minnesota, uh, Philando Castile, uh, that's taken George Floyd since then. Uh, I mean, Look, if, if I were to tell you, Glenn, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about uh, a, 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 a horrific uh, killing of, uh, of a non-aggressive African-American male at the hands of law enforcement during the trial of another horrific killing of an African-American man at the hands of law enforcement, I'd have to be more specific than that because we experienced that with Dante Wright and then we just experienced that again with Amir Locke. It's just heartbreaking. It's un anyways. Um, we knew that we had community members who were heartbroken. Frankly, we had police officers who were heartbroken who looked at that video with disgust as well. I remember our chief of police telling our St. Paul police officers, if any of you can watch this video and see anything honorable in it, like give me your badge today, which I think was a very strong and important uh, message from him. Um, none of our officers gave him that, gave him their badge because I don't know a single one of our officers who looked at that and said, yeah, that's good policing. 
um, we did um, that first press conference with the governor and I you know, put on my suit and walked out the door and I uh, had this press conference. I came home and my wife goes, oh, how did it go? And I said, it was fine. Just like a small kind of thing with kind of a couple cameras in the room. And she said, well, no, <laughs> that was on live stream on CNN and literally everybody saw it. So it was kind of a funny thing because I, I literally didn't know that we were talking to the world in a way that we kind of ended up kind of being talking to the world. But one of my goals was to um, uh, try to bridge that world. I think we saw that in Minnesota more poignantly than ever is after George Floyd was murdered, um, there were people in our community who couldn't imagine how that could have possibly happened. And there are people in our community who went, of course that happened. And of course it's gonna keep happening until we take some like real meaningful steps to interrupt this cycle. And I would say that's still the case. Um, there's, there's no logical reason to think that Amir Locke is gonna be the last name on that list until we take some real proactive uh, intervening effort uh, as a state, which we've started some building blocks towards, but it, it'd be hard to say that like we've taken the decisive steps as a state or as a country necessary to stop this trend from kind of going on and on. And you know, again, as somebody who grew up the son of a police officer, somebody who grew up uh, praying for the safety of our police officers literally every day, and as somebody who grew up knowing what it feels like to get pulled over by a police officer and know you weren't speeding, um, I think I felt in that moment uh, that there was an opportunity for me to hopefully uh, serve as sort of a, a, an interpreter between the two worlds that I've lived in all my life. Yeah. I'm curious what you see for the why, you know, the YMCA being one of those institutions that's been here for all time, you know, even, even uh, dating back to the start of our state and, and the earliest days of St. Paul as a city. And we think about ourselves as an intervention mechanism, a mechanism to come alongside families and really serve and support those that need us most. And I know you have a why story yourself. I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. And then also maybe follow up with uh, what are you looking for from an entity, an organization like the Y? Um, I, I do have a Y story. You know, I grew up kind of playing at the Y and going to the Y. Uh, and we had the downtown uh, St. Paul Skyway Y uh, that on Saturday mornings, uh, I think twice a month, uh, sponsored this program called Black Achievers. Uh, and in Black Achievers, uh, and for some reason, uh, we were really excited at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. Uh, instead of sleeping in, we wanted to set an alarm clock, uh, get up, uh, get on the city bus and come downtown. And we'd ultimately sit in a classroom uh, and hear from people about, you know, we learn about black history or we learn about chemistry from, uh, there were a couple of chemists who would come over from 3M uh, and there were just kind of different professionals who would stop and take the time uh, with us uh, to just engage with us. There, there were mentors there. there I, I formed some lifelong friendships with folks who are still friends. Um, and I'll tell you, I just told you I went to Florida a and University. Um, that, uh, that program was full of Florida a and University alumni um, who took every opportunity to let us know what they thought about their, uh, the, the, about their alma mater, uh, which was a part of how I ended up down there in college in the first place. So that was very much, uh, there was a woman who uh, I think worked at Deluxe Corporation who was a mentor, who just, I don't know why, took me on as a mentee at that time. Uh, and we'd have these kind of banquet, you know, the annual banquets or the dinners that we'd end up finding ourselves at. Uh, and she always pulled me to the corner and demanded to see the three uh, business cards I had in my pocket from people who um, I had networked with today. 
Um, and uh, she would give me an earful uh, if ever I was in a room full of professionals and didn't have three business cards in my pocket from people who um, I had successfully networked or made kind of some connection with. Um, and so, yeah, the YMCA was like very much our gathering point. Uh, it was very much, uh, you know, be able to get there on a weekend. Uh, we'd, you know, stay afterwards and play basketball, a sport, a sport uh, that I've never been accused of being particularly gifted in. Um, but we, you know, just run around the gym and play and hang out and, you know, uh, uh, hang out downtown and just kind of experience one another. And so the, for me, the YMCA very much facilitated um, relationships with adult mentors who continue to be mentors to this day. Uh, helped me facilitate my uh, envisioning of life beyond high school. Uh, helped me to facilitate growing, you know, building friends, peers my age who continue to be friends to this day. Uh, and that's really important. What, what I think I would um, ask from the YMCA is the same thing I ask from our recreation centers and our libraries. Um, I, I'm, in, I'm in the blessed position that what I'm fighting for is for every child in our community to experience the St. Paul that I experienced growing up. Um, you know, I got a chance to use sports. I got a chance to, you know, you know, visit the YMCA to use Black Achievers, uh, to be surrounded by adults in my neighborhood who really uh, cared about me and were determined to see me succeed, uh, whether I liked it or not, uh, frankly. Um, and I got was was blessed to be able to leverage the things that I was passionate about, and for me, very much in particular as a young person, track and field. Uh, to create opportunities in our recreation center, uh, to create opportunities in high school, to create opportunities to travel, to create opportunities uh, to help me pay for my college degree, uh, and those types of things. What I want is a St. Paul where that's true for every child in every neighborhood uh, with any passion, right? Um, whether it's sports uh, or robotics or arts uh, or, or, or cooking or computer programming, whatever it is, um, I believe that we're the type of community that can provide those types of opportunities. Frankly, because we have the professionals here, right? Uh, we have the entities here. We have the institutions here. We have the industry here uh, to be able to do that. And we have the like diversity here to be able to do that. An organization like the YMC, I think, is uniquely positioned to be that convener and that facilitator to help connect uh, those resources uh, with the families and the young people uh, that really rely on them. You guys have been doing that for a really long time in our city, uh, and you know I'm 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 counting on that that very long-standing track record to continue. I appreciate that, and you think you've talked about the systemic challenges that we have to undo, and so I'd also turn it to you in terms of me as a middle-aged leader. Uh, what are you looking for from a leader like me? Oh, that's a um, charged question, then. <laughs> Quick story. Um, my first year as mayor, uh, my communications director walked in my office one day and said, Mayor, do you want fireworks on the 4th of July? And I said, I love fireworks. Absolutely. And he said, OK, it's going to cost us $100,000. And I said, absolutely not. What's next? Right. Um, and just a couple of weeks after that, we were able to find um, $100,000 to help launch a legal defense fund for immigrants and refugees in our community who were being targeted at that time by the Trump administration. Um, all that to say is a friend of mine who's been a close friend and a colleague in progressive politics uh, with me for a very long time uh, looked at me and said, well, isn't this an equity thing? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, black kids and white kids and rich kids and poor kids and kids in every neighborhood can look up and see the fireworks just the same. So it has to be equity. And it really was an awakening for me, Glenn, that we got to figure out what we're talking about when we say the word equity, right? I think we know what we feel like it should feel like. I think we know that the pictures should be diverse and everybody should feel comfortable. But I, but I think oftentimes we don't have a, a real 
um, solid and actionable definition of what we're after when we say we're after equity in a way that gives us a chance to really be on the same team, moving towards the same goal. Luckily, I went to business school. Uh, when I was in business school for undergrad and my dean said the word equity, it wasn't an amorphous concept whatsoever. It was a money word that described um, ownership. It described uh, participation in decision-making processes. Um, and it uh, described participation in an economy. If I own equity in a company and that company has a good quarter, uh, then I had a good quarter too. And so everything that we're trying to do, the vision that we're trying to push forward for St. Paul centers around that definition of equity. What does it take to make sure that every child, every family, in every single neighborhood in our community knows that they are stakeholder owners uh, in our community? I tell folks every day who say, oh, we might come to City Hall or, you know, uh, can we, or, or who ask, are the meetings public? I always tell them, listen, you literally pay the rent there. You are the owner there. Not only is it public, but it is yours. It belongs to you. As, 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 by virtue of it belonging to you, then you get to help make the decision-making processes. That's why, Glenn, as I know you're well aware, uh, when we hire my cabinet, every member of my cabinet has been hired through a community-based um, uh, hiring panel process. That's why when we bring a budget to the, to the city council, it's not my budget. It's a budget that we always create with hundreds of St. Paul residents who come together. That's why in the first 100 days of my administration, well before George Floyd was killed and it, this stuff became a buzzword, uh, we said we're going to completely revise our use of force policies uh, for our St. Paul Police Department. That we're going to do it. We're the first and only law enforcement entity that I'm aware of that said we can't just disappear in the back room somewhere and write a use of force policies. This is a covenant between our officers and our community members, and it's only good if we make it together. Like we have to be able to kind of build this covenant together mm -hmm. in order for it to be something that we can all like really stand behind. That's why we're doing this to make sure that people know as owners, that means you have a, a decision-making authority, you have decision-making power in our community. Uh, and as such, when we do those things, and listen, we've raised the minimum wage, we've eliminated late fines in our public libraries, uh, we've created an office of financial empowerment, uh, we've launched a guaranteed income pilot, uh, we started College Bound St. Paul to start every child born in our city with $50 in a college savings account, and all that is that final element of equity. That is to say that as our city's economy grows, as our city kind of gets bigger, as our city prospers and we can see all around us people who have found great opportunity for an incredible quality of life, an incredible uh, way to launch their career or their business or their idea in St. Paul, that people on the east side, people on the west side, people in far town and the north end, their lives ought to be a little bit better as well. So that's all a part of saying we are going to build a shared economy in which uh, when our city does better, people inside our city do better as well. And so my challenge for folks who want to know um, how to push the ball on equity is to think of equity as ownership, uh, decision-making power, um, and participation in an economy. Uh, and, and, and every chance we can do, every chance we get to switch from identifying a group of people who we want to help to identifying groups of people who we want to be um, owner, stakeholders, and beneficiaries of whatever work and whatever organization that we're building. Uh, I think that's a good I think that's a good model to take, and I think that's the way forward for us as a city. Yeah, thank you for that leadership lesson. I mean, I, I love the notion of stakeholder ownership, and I, I even in our own right as a YMCA, the work we're doing around equity. I think you've given us some additional fuel and language to get that right. Um, so. Glenn, yeah. The only other thing that I would say is, and this is one of the things that I've learned. Mayor Fry in Minneapolis always jokes that the only thing people hate more than the status quo is any change whatsoever. 
Um, and that's something that I've learned to be true. Uh, as human beings, uh, we want things to be better, but we're uncomfortable when things are different. Uh, and by definition, things cannot be better uh, without things being different. I had a, a conversation with a reporter at the end of this past year uh, who asked me, you know, was it, was it was a story about the fact that St. Paul experienced a record number of homicides in 2021. And the question was, do I still believe we ought to be going down this road of reinventing uh, our approaches toward public safety and why? And I said, well, of course I do. And the reason is because we just had a record number of homicides in 2021. Yeah. We, we see the housing systems, we see the economic systems, we see the educational systems, we see the public safety systems. We all know they haven't produced the type of outcomes that we, uh, that we desire for ourselves. And then we also get really, really uncomfortable when someone proposes a major change to those systems. That in and of itself is a contrast. We have to know that change is going to make us uncomfortable, that the things that we're comfortable with, the systems, the processes, the policies, the investments that we're comfortable with are, by definition, the ones that we're used to. And those are the same ones that have paved the road to get to where we are today. So the final, I think the cherry on top of that definition I just described in equity is uh, the, the, the one litmus test that we can all use to know uh, if we are making a real difference, if we're committing ourselves to real change or not, is that if we feel comfortable uh, with the strategies that we're employing, uh, if they feel comfortable uh, and um, um, uh, what's the word, and familiar to us, uh, then we're probably not where we want to be. Yeah. Mayor, one last question. I, I really, you know, you think about the global unrest, the the strife right now in war in Ukraine, the us coming out of the pandemic, all the systemic challenges and barriers that you talked about that you're getting after day in and day out, um, that can be overwhelming for a leader. So what brings you, Mayor Melvin Carter, what brings you hope? Lots of things. Oh, lots and lots of things. Like my wife is a healthcare provider and just seeing the world through her eyes gives me hope. You know, uh, they're frustrated because, you know, all they need us to do is wear a mask and get vaccinated. And, you know, we, we have a, the, the biggest public discourse is whether or not that's too much. Uh, but seeing uh, her and her colleagues kind of push forward, uh, that gives me hope. Uh, my children are in our public schools and seeing the way they've been kind of pushing forward through. I mean, it's a hard time to be a kid right now and to see the way they've been pushing forward uh, to the way their teachers have like gone above and beyond to support them gives me hope. Uh, we just had a birthday party to this uh, weekend for my daughter, my youngest daughter who turned two uh, and her excitement about the world and the excitement to learn kind of gives me hope. Um, it, it feels like uh, the, the crises that we face together uh, create, have opened doors uh, for us to build uh, policy solutions together. That gives me hope. And I'll tell you, um, you know, I, I think in metaphors sometimes uh, and, you know, if you ever seen that horror movie uh, where um, you know, the, the second to last scene uh, when the demons or the, the monsters know they're on the run um, and know it's the sort of last stand, uh, that's when the beds start levitating and the mirrors start spinning and everything kind of goes nuts. Um, I think that that's, the mo that's this moment in American history and I think that, that, that that's this moment in world history uh, that, you know, uh, in the words of Martin Luther King, the arc of the uh, moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Um, I think that we are that, that we are bending the curve. They've had an enormous amount of opportunities to bend the curve over, over these past couple of years. And the way that we're seeing everything seemingly go haywire all at the same time, uh, to me, I think history will show uh, that it's because uh, the monsters that have successfully haunted our lives uh, over the course of the past forever 
uh, feel really threatened by the progress we're making. Yeah. Hey, Mayor Melvin Carter, I want to thank you on behalf of, well, certainly on be my behalf, but also on behalf of all of our viewers and listeners. You are a leader for good. We're grateful for you being out there battling on behalf of our youth and families. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to have a partner like the Y in this work. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Conversations On, where the YMCA of the North engages with local and national leaders, helping to inspire you. 